the retreat was a couple years before the exit, maybe in 2010, I think. Um, and, um, you know, we got together to decide strategy. The, the, the problem with webs always was that it served every customer, which also means you're not serving any customer. So we had small businesses, we had groups, but then the vast majority of our users were just personal users who were making websites of, for just personal expression and blogs and stuff like that. Um, and that was like, you know, over 60% of our users was that. So when you think about like you're building a feature, well, what are you building? Like, is it for this personal user or for a group or organization or for a business? So we got into that meeting, we looked at the data, we, we discovered that a lot of the premium customers actually were businesses. Um, so the people who are upgrading were businesses because there's a motivation to do it, right? They can make money from their website. Then we actually said, okay, look, who would buy this company? And we literally listed, uh, like, we, we, we probably came up with maybe 10 names of companies, mostly public companies that we thought would want to buy webs. And as we looked at them, we saw that many of them were companies that focused on the small business market. Um, and Vistaprint was on that list, Intuit was on that list, right? You could imagine other names on that list, like Salesforce, things like that, um, Constant Contact. And so um, as we looked at that, we said, okay, well, that's kind of what those companies are. Why would they buy a, a company that's all about personal websites, for example? Like they're gonna have no need for that. And so we said, look, if, if we're ever gonna get value for this thing, we need to be a company that is valuable for these types of people. And so in that meeting, we decided to actually reposition and pivot the entire company to be focused on the small business customer and solutions for them. Hi there, and welcome back to another episode of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm your executive producer, Colin Morgan, and today on the show, John sits down with Haroon Makdazarda, who sold two companies, each for more than 10 times revenue. But before I tell you about Haroon, let me remind you to head over to builttosell.com. During today's episode, Haroon will refer to raising money from an investor with a 3x participating liquidity preference. Now, for more information on what that means, I will put this in the show notes section over at builttosell.com along with some of the other M&A lingo that John and Haroon are going to reference in today's episode. So be sure you head over to builttosell.com. Okay, so now let me tell you about Haroon today. Haroon sold webs.com, forget this, $117.5 million. A few short years later, he started Truebill and most recently sold this company, forget this, $1.275 billion. During today's episode, I want you to be on the lookout for the mistake Haroon made in his first business, webs.com, that cost him around $50 million and how he was able to correct that mistake when raising money for his most recent company, Truebill. Just a wonderful reminder of why we do these podcasts to help you avoid some of the most common unforced errors. And we're super grateful for Haroon and his candor and humility to be able to share these mistakes with us. Here to share the full story with John today is Haroon Makdazarda. Enjoy. Haroon Makhtarzada, welcome to Bilsa Radio. Great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, it's awesome. And I was talking before we hit record. This is an embarrassment of riches. Like we could talk about so much stuff because you've had two 
incredible exits that I'm aware of and, and probably participated as an investor in many more. So I'm really excited about this conversation. Looking forward to it. Tell me a little bit. We're, we've decided there are there are sort of two companies that are really quite spectacular exits. One's called Webs.com and the other is Truebill. Truebill is the more recent of the two. However, we've decided to dig into Webs because there probably are more transferable lessons for our listeners there. We'll also talk about some of the key insights from the Truebill sale as well. But I thought you know our listeners might might get the most out of talking about the web story. So tell folks who don't know webs, what does or did webs do? What was your business model? Yeah, we were a free website creation platform um, with a freemium model. And so you could come and build your own website with templates. So if you think about Wix and Squarespace and some of the other ones, the, the larger ones today, we were directly competing with them. Um, we were one of the early ones um, and, you know, you could sign up for a free website and then you could upgrade, um, you know, via subscription to premium services. And what were the triggers to the upgrade? Like, why would somebody upgrade to the premium? Yeah, so the main one was to get a custom domain name. Otherwise, you'd have a subdomain on like .webs.com. And then we would remove ads from your website. Um, you could get like a photo album. You could add like some store buttons, e-com buttons, things like that. Um, so basically just like various features. Got it. And how did you finance the growth of this? Was this all your own cash you put in or did you? So we did, we bootstrapped it initially actually. So um, started right out of the end of um, University of Maryland with my brothers. And then I went to Harvard Law School and so was building it, you know, from there during that time. And it was just bootstrapped on the small amount of revenue it was making. Um, and then in two, when I graduated, I decided not to become a lawyer, but I did graduate. And then shortly thereafter, we went and raised a Series A. So we raised $12 million uh, and that was it. We just did that one round. So it was five years bootstrapping and then five years later was when we were acquired by Vistaprint. Got so many questions around that. What made you decide to go to law school? Um, honestly, the answer is I didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, a friend of mine said he was taking the LSAT and I said, that's not a bad idea. I'll take it with you. I did all right. Uh, and so I just applied to Harvard. And I said, if I get into Harvard, it's probably worth going. And I got in. And so I went. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I think I might learn to play baseball. And then like five minutes later, you're playing for New York Yankees. It's amazing. Uh, so you go to law school, you and your brother, how many brothers? Um, two brothers. Um, were, I have three brothers that I work with. We started with two and then the third one joined later. How did you guys figure out the equity split? Um, you know, we for the for the three co-founders, we split it evenly. Um, I just split it evenly with my brothers, and then and one of them was fourteen at the time, so he did quite well. Um, <laughs> and and, and uh, um, you know, and then and then the one that came later, we we just kind of gave him equity as we would. Got it. Got it. Yeah. What precipitated? The decision to raise money because you're bootstrapping. Presumably, you yeah. could have bootstrapped for longer. Why not continue to bootstrap, keep all the equity yeah. for you guys? This is a really interesting story. I'm glad you asked that. So when we came, when I got back from law school and stuff, we, we kind of had we were just let's call we were like one to two million in revenue and cash flow positive, right? So we were living the dream because you have a lifestyle business at that point. 
and and I want to I want to talk about that later. Is like you really got to think about when you're raising because you do lose something. That freedom of being an entrepreneur and just like having no boss and stuff like that. The second you take venture money, that goes out the window, and it feels very different. But what happened is we went to someone who kind of was was an advisor and, and had taken a company public and stuff like that. They basically the only person we knew locally, and we said, "Hey, do you think we could sell the company?" And he said, well, okay, tell me about it. We told him we're doing 2 million revenue. And we said, do you think we could get, or like one and a half, do you think we get 6 million bucks for this? And he said, yeah, maybe. Uh, why? And we said, well, the way we think about it, um, if we sell a company for six and after taxes and stuff and like, you know, paying some employees and stuff like that, we'd end up with three and each of us would get 1 million and we'd be millionaires. Um, <laughs> and so that was it. And he said, well, then what would you do? And I said, well, we're millionaires and we had that money. We could take that and go start a company and it would like be an awesome company and things like that. And he's like, well, you already have a company. And he's like, and by the way, it's really hard to get to where you've gotten because we had like millions of free users signing up, you know, every day for free. Um, we weren't spending any money on marketing. He's like, it's not easy to, to build a platform like what you've built. He said, why don't you keep this, make this that new company? And we said, well, look, like we're broke. We haven't, you know, we, we've been working on this for years. We're broke, like, you know, and, and there's risk in doing that because he said you should raise money. And he said, look, when you have a company that's working like this and you raise money, you can take some money off the table. And so that's what we ended up doing. We raised 12 million. We took a small amount of that and gave it to ourselves. You know, nothing like we were millionaires or anything, but just enough that like, even if all hell broke loose, like, like, like the shit hit the fan, it wouldn't have been a complete wipeout and a complete loss. So you're referring and, to a secondary, I think. As yeah, exactly. PC we did some secondary. To. Exactly. So, so some a, of it was used. Yeah. Yeah. With, when a professional institutional investor comes in, makes an investment, the most of the money is, is used to grow the business. But you negotiated a secondary so that went into your pockets. Can I ask how much of that, how much the secondary was? Um, we took about... Um, out of the 12, it was less than two of it Got for, it. All, for all the employees. Got it. Got yeah. it. So, so I mean, it was a small amount. At that point, you're putting some money in your jeans. Most of your yeah. needs are met. And if everything goes pear shape, you've still got a little bit out of it. Yeah. You've got something. You can buy a house, right? We could afford a down payment. Like, I mean, we were literally like the year before that. Me and my wife looked at a bank statement. We had like $16 in it one day. Like it was just like, we just had no money. <laughs> You're the brokest Harvard grad I've ever married. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in law, like I was on financial aid in law school. I mean, like, you know, I just didn't like, didn't come from money, didn't have any money. Yeah. Amazing. So you raised this money. How does the business change as a result of having 12 million bucks in the bank or 10 and change. Yeah. I mean, the, the first thing that they did, the investors told us is you now need to build an executive team, right? Because before that was just kind of like us and people we hired to help with stuff. And um, that's not like a skill you learn as a 20, 20 year old, right? Or whatever. I was maybe 20. Well, now I would have been 25 at the time. Um, and I made a lot of mistakes actually. Like you just, what do I do? You look at resumes and you say, oh, this person worked here, they worked there, they must be really good. And you start hiring people, you don't really know what questions to ask. Um, but it, it changed. So now we had like a layer of management that then each of them wanted to start building their teams, right? Like when you take venture funding, 
the number one thing it's for usually is building out at an early stage is building out a team. And then it might also be for marketing. We never figured out paid marketing in the company. So it was more like to pay for building a team bigger than what you would normally do with the cash flow of the business. And then the second thing that happens is you start burning money as an org. So you go from being profitable to not being profitable. That's the point. Otherwise, you wouldn't have raised the money. What was your um, pre-money valuation in your mind? So you're doing about a million five in revenue. Yeah. You think if we could get six, we could put three in our jeans. Do you remember yeah. roughly what it, what the pre-money so valuation it, yeah. was? Yeah. So it was, it was a little later. So we had grown some since there. So maybe we were somewhere between two and three million in revenue when we were raising. Um, and the pre-money... I think was in the mid twenties. Wow! Actually, yeah. So still unbelievably high. like that's a really big multiple on a couple or three million dollars in revenue. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, but I mean, yeah. So it was a Series A round, um, and but then they also put they were East Coast venture funds, and they put some pretty interesting participating preferred preferences on the deal, um, which. I didn't understand the math of how that works, but ended up meaning that it would have been equivalent to a you know a lower pre money than that. Can you explain what you mean by that? Again, folks listening yeah. to this are going through this exact thing. And yeah, I mean it's just, it's super interesting to to know. So a preference is when the investor says, "Okay, we're going to invest, but if you if you sell the company, we're going to get our money back first. So an example of that is. Um, uh, you have, let's say they put a million dollars in the company and they just have a normal preference. Then if you sell the company for 10 million, they get one. If you sell the company for 1 million, they also get one, you get zero, <laughs> even if you own 90% of the company, right? So, sorry, if you sell it for 10 and let's say they own, we had to say what percent they own. Let's say they own 20%, they would get $2 million, right? So the preference doesn't come into play at all. But in the other case, if they sold it for one, they're getting 100% of the value because they guaranteed get like up to a million dollars first before anyone gets it. That's a normal preference. It's fairly standard. A participating preference says they always get their one first and then they get their shares after that. So in that, uh, in that thing where that's 10 million, they would get one and now there's nine left and they would get 20% on, on that nine. So they'd get 2.8 in that deal, right? Versus just getting the 20%, which would be two. In our case, we had a participating preference with a multiple and with interest on it. So it was a 3x liquidation preference that was participating, which means and we put 12 million in. They put 12 million in. Okay. Then there was interest on it. So by the time we sold the company, it was 17. Then, but they had a 3x participating preference on that. So it was three times that amount was what they ended up getting as a guaranteed amount. And so it was like pretty, you know, they ended up, their, their guaranteed amount was like pretty good. Um, and then, you More know, they shared. Right about. Yeah, they well, got, I mean, they got, exactly, exactly. Yeah. They didn't own 50% of the company, but they got like, you know, almost that much of the deal. Okay. That's blowing my mind. That's crazy. Yeah. So a 3X, yeah. they had a 3X participating preference. Yeah. Plus interest. So they're plus interest. 12 in. Interest yeah. is at 17 by the time yeah. the deal is done five years later. Yeah. And, and the like, interest Ooh. multiplied by three too. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it was, um, so then it, it was the shocking to, we, we'd only realized it at the time of the sale, but that was the deal we had signed. And so it was what it was. 
So you didn't you didn't really fully process this at the time of accepting the Yeah, and I mean, you know, that was my fault at the end of the day. I was just so happy to be getting a deal done, right? That I just we just kind of signed a deal and moved forward. What was the reaction among the brothers when you all realized this liquidity preference, the implications of that? Look, at the end of the day, um, you know, when you're having a big exit event, the whether you make 10 or 20% more than that kind of doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Like it's so, it was still like, we just care about closing the deal because it's a binary thing. Like either you you have a, a, a new, like either you're going to be shifted into a new way of living your life financially or not, right? And so exactly how much you get it's just a function of like, okay, this set me back. Like it'll take a couple of years in the stock market to kind of get back to that or whatever. So it's not that big of a deal. And we didn't, it didn't, it was like frustrating. We're like, you know, we we're kind of kicking ourselves a bit, but then they might not have, they might've changed the valuation. Right. And so we might've gotten to the same point anyway. Um, we asked for the higher valuation. So when I actually talked to the, the board members about this and they were like, look, here's what happened. You put a valuation target that we felt was too high. And so this was our way of like getting to the price you wanted, but still feel comfortable with the deal. Maybe if we had tried to negotiate up front, then they would have brought the price down and been like, fine, then this is the price we want. So, you know, I I think it might've worked out similarly. Mm. It's just more like just founders need to be super aware of the terms that that are in the deal, what they mean. Yeah. And again, just to get the language right, it's a participating preference with interest. With interest and and like a multiple, right? So not like one X, but like there was a three X yeah. liquidation preference. And this is this is uh this is super helpful for folks who've never gone through the process of raising money. So that's uh that's worth the price of it. Now remember that was two thousand six. So you're talking about uh, you know, what, sixteen sixteen years ago? So uh, there are still deals that have that, but there's a lot fewer of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And 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 of course we're talking in June of 2022, where we're in the midst of a real pullback in the NASDAQ and you know, private mm-hmm. markets are, are locking up. So we may get back to some of these punitive terms. Yeah, we might. Yeah. 100%, especially in follow-on rounds, 100%. We're going to see a lot of that stuff yeah. where their investor can be like, fine, I will fund the company to prevent it from going bankrupt, but I'm going to get some real money out of this thing. And look, the way this would have worked out, like imagine we had sold the company for $30 million, right? You would, They put in 12, right? You'd say, okay, they might make their money back or a little bit more because they had, let's say, a third of the company. We would have gotten $0, right? And it's like, you got to be really careful of like, what's the benchmark you're setting for yourself and where are you zeroing yourself out uh, and, and really, you know, negotiate the right point for yourself and what you're comfortable with. Yeah, for sure. You talked about building an executive team and being 25 just out of law school, like that was a new thing for you. Yeah. I think a lot of people listening to this are are probably in the throes of building their C-level team out. Yeah. It would benefit from your experience. You mentioned you made a couple of mistakes. Yeah. What was the biggest mistake you made in building your executive team? Um, I think the biggest mistake I made was, so, so one is hiring people where I didn't have a clear idea of what they were actually going to do. 
I actually think sometimes the best way to do it is like you set up a department, you set up something and you're like, now I need someone to run it. And like, you know, like it's at a good place and like, let me just drop someone in or you need a whole new department and, and like you, you, you need, you don't know how to set it up. And so you're just going to bring someone to build out a whole practice, but taking something that's already working and just trying to plug a senior person into it for the heck of it, even though it's already working well is like, is very difficult because the, the people who are used to the way it was working and all of that, there can be tissue rejection, there can be all kinds of problems and fallout from doing that. And people feel like, so for example, in the product area, I was doing that. And, but then I was like, I need a product lead under me. But then everyone was like going around them and still coming to me. And if I disagreed with the person under me, it would be my decision anyway. So people were just like, I'll just come back to Harun. And so it's like, sort of then that person's wondering what their real role is. Um, so that's one. The other is just paying too much attention to the resume and like not enough attention to like, it, there's a lot of good resumes out there and it's really hard to tease out. You can see like, oh, that was a great company or that was a great product and this person worked on that product. But what you don't know is like, what did they actually do? Like, you know, if you think about like school and you think about group projects, there was like the one or two people that like really made that group project happen. And then there's everybody else who kind of supported and contributed. And it's like, that's who you want to find is like, who's the person that you're like really wanted to be on your group project in school. That's the type of person you want to hire. And if it's not on a resume, yeah. what do you look for in an interview or some other source to identify the person who's going to do the line, share the work in the group project? Yeah. I mean, the first thing is like when you're interviewing them, is the stuff they're saying like super resonating? Like you, you almost come away with a feeling for really great hires, like in the first conversation, you're just like, holy crap, I have to get this person. Like, that's what it feels like. It's like, geez, I need to get that person. And it's like, a, there's a chemistry between you. You guys like talking the same way. You have like some shared interests. And then the stuff they're saying is like, there's things that are like either blowing your mind or getting you really excited, right? And that's what it feels like. And what I ended up doing is I would have these conversations and I would be like, I guess they're good. Um, so let's hire them. And it's like super risky when you're dealing with senior hires to do that. Like you've got to be like really, really like I ha we have to have this person in our company. Yeah, yeah. What I'm hearing you say is there's there's a there's a sort of level of of connection you get with someone where there is a deep shared uh, knowledge of something. Like if you're having a conversation with a casual sports fan, and you start talking about something peculiar like the Tour de France bike race. They yeah. might be able to reference, oh, you know, Mayo Jean and the, the Peloton, et cetera, but they won't necessarily be able to get into the details. If that guy was in sixth gear on Alpe d'Huez on third turn, and right. when you find someone like that and you start to connect in that level of detail, it's like instant. You know they've actually know what they're talking about. Yeah, yeah, you know what they're talking about exactly. Am I yeah. putting words in your mouth here? But as no. you talk about it, I I feel that I think sense. Of I think that's right, and often having them maybe present something. Or do some work, solve a challenge that you've been thinking about or something like, what would you do in this case? And if they come back with something that's like, oh, wow, that's actually better than what I would have done, right? Like they've got to kind of be better than you in some way at your at the job. Um, otherwise, it's going to be really hard because you're just going to be telling them to do things and you're just going to want to be like, forget it. I'll do it myself because I can do it better. Um, and so like they've got to be better than you at it um, and they've got to be necessary. Like they can't just be superfluous or like, Let's hope. It's also really good to just have, if someone tells you this person is awesome and there's someone you trust, 
that's super helpful, right? Like they're just like, trust me, they're just awesome. You're not going to go wrong with this person. And that's different than calling the two references that they might give you because they're, they're, those are always going to be good. Um, but like you need to do some back channel ideally to someone else that you know that worked with them. And, you know, look, think about all the people you've worked with in the past. Like you know who's awesome and you know who's like, okay. Um, and like the people that are awesome, you'd be like, dude, if you can get that person, hire them yesterday. And that's like the type of language you want to hear. That's the signal um, that like, okay, this is like a really good person. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned at the beginning when you talked about, you know, do you want to raise money? And in the early days, you and your brothers had a you know, couple million dollar business. It was a lifestyle business. And all of a sudden, when you take professional money, it, yeah. it changes. And I think people understand that at a superficial level, at a 30,000 foot level. But I'd love for you to tell me a story a specific day and time, an example of where you realized, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. now have investors. Yeah. Well, yeah. Can you tell, us, tell that story? Yeah. I'll tell you that story. Um, so we, we went, we raised money, we got investors, and then it was time for a board meeting. We'd never done a board meeting before. And um, we go into the board meeting, we present, and suddenly the board's like, okay, what about this? What about this? Where's the data on this? What's this? And we're just like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And they're like, how do you not know? Like, you need to be running this company like this. You need to know these numbers. You need to have these metrics. You need to bring, bring them to the board meetings, blah, blah, blah. And we were just like thrown into a tussle. And then it was like, okay, we need all this stuff by the next board meeting. And suddenly that meeting ended and it's like, whoa, like we have a lot of homework. There's people who could be like upset at us now. Um, and we're now working for what these people want and doing what these other people want. And that was, I mean, that was a big shift. It's like, you know, we were just, before that, we would go into work. Sure, we would show up on time, but we didn't have to. And, you know, like just doing what we felt was, you know, what we felt we wanted to do that day. We weren't doing a lot of planning. Like we weren't doing any of that stuff. Like we were just enjoying ourselves building this company. And now it just felt like there was this weighty responsibility that we had because we fundamentally had a fiduciary duty that didn't exist before, right? Like we took these people's money and this, this money isn't just like their personal money either. There's, you know, pension funds in these investment, investment funds, right? It's like firefighters and teachers money, right? It's all kinds of stuff in there. And so you have a fiduciary duty and then you have reputational risk now because you've got institutional investors. And so the stakes are way higher. You can't just like fade off into oblivion if it, you know, if the thing dies, you're worried that like, you know, now you wouldn't, which isn't necessarily true. I mean, people invest in failed founders all the time, but um, it just feels very different than like that joy of just waking up in the morning and working on your startup. And I've talked to other founders about this and they agree. And so here's the thing you have to ask yourself is because the investors are not in it for some small return. That's not how venture funding works. So you have to ask yourself, is this company going to be potentially a public company? And it, if the answer to that question is no, you probably should not be raising venture funding. Like if you don't believe that's a, that's a good possibility. Now, that doesn't mean you wouldn't sell it along the way. But like if you think the company can only get to $20 million in revenue and then it's kind of going to flatten out, that's not venture returns. Like sure, you could sell that for $100, $200 million maybe if you're lucky. Um, but that's not going to like, that's not even a venture return. That That's not that interesting. 
right? The, the things that really drive venture returns are like 100x or things like that, unless you're talking about growth rounds. So, um, so you've, like, you've got to ask that question. If the answer is no, you might make a lot more money keeping it as a lifestyle business. Because the second change is we were writing ourselves checks. Like I, anytime like I, we were doing a, you know, we, a big purchase or I was buying a house or whatever, I'd call my brothers and say, hey, how about we dividend out, you know, 50K each, right? And we just write ourselves $50,000 checks, right? Which, you know, maybe we were making 200K, 300K in profit a year. And so like that kind of worked out. Well, the second you take money, you're not doing that anymore, right? So everything about it changes um, and the stakes are higher and it feels like work again, which is something entrepreneurs don't generally love. Um, and, uh, and, and so you've got to really ask yourself, like, am I willing to give all of that up? And the only reason the answer should be yes is because this is a giant freaking opportunity that I'm not going to be able to get uh, unless I uh, get venture funding. There's competitors, there's other people I'm not going to be able to compete with. I'm not going to be able to get the talent also because you're not going to get top talent to join a lifestyle business. So, you know, for those reasons, I'm going to go and take venture funding. Would you do it again if you could rewind the clock? I think for Truebill, yes. And I think for Webs, no. Now, it ended up working out well. Here's the thing is it ended up working out well because at the end of the day, when it came to sell the company, the investors themselves helped negotiate and they, they helped impose a higher price on the deal because while we might have been willing to take a less amount, they were like, we're not willing to take less. And so the company had to pay more. Otherwise, they would have said no to the deal. So it ended up working out, but almost kind of there was some luck in that. Um, it could have gone very differently. And I think as a lifestyle business, we could have had something. Let's say we, we grew it to 15 or 20. Let's say we grew it to 20 million revenue and our costs were at 10. We would have been kicking off 10 million a year. So after 10 years, that's $100 million, right? Like that's after you're getting diluted from multiple rounds and stuff, that's how much you could make even in like a huge exit scenario. So you've got to kind of do that math and, and really think it through. Um, so I wouldn't have for that. But for Truebill, I mean, it was four years to, you know, a, a unicorn exit from, from our first round. And, and like that would have never happened without venture funding. We'll get to Truebill in a second. I want to finish up yeah. Webs though. Where did you yeah. get with Webs uh, in terms of revenue before you decided to, to sell? So we got to about $10 million in, in uh, revenue run rate. And what proportion of that was recurring? Uh, that's it was like all recurring. Got it. So people would subscribe, yeah. subscriptions, you know, upgrade yeah. from the freemium, and it, got it. Yeah. That's helpful. You mentioned before we hit record that there was a fateful sort of retreat you went on, and yeah. and it had a material impact on sort of the way you thought about the business going forward. Can you describe that that retreat? Yeah. So um, the retreat was a couple years before the exit, maybe in 2010, I think, um, and. Um, you know, we got together to decide strategy. The, the problem with webs always was that it served every customer, which also means you're not serving any customer. So we had small businesses, we had groups, but then the vast majority of our users were just personal users who were making websites for just personal expression and blogs and stuff like that. Um, and that was like, you know, over 60% of our users was that. So when you think about like you're building a feature, well, what are you building? Like, is it for this personal user or for a group or organization or for a business? So we got into that meeting, we looked at the data, and we, we discovered that a lot of the premium customers actually were businesses. Um, so the people who are upgrading were businesses because there's a motivation to do it, right? They're going to make money from their website. 
Then we actually said, okay, look, who would buy this company? And we literally listed, uh, like, we, we, we probably came up with maybe 10 names of companies, mostly public companies that we thought would want to buy webs. And as we looked at them, we saw that many of them were companies that focused on the small business market. Um, and Vistaprint was on that list. Intuit was on that list, right? You can imagine other names on that list, like Salesforce, things like that. Um, Constant Contact. And so um, as we looked at that, we said, okay, well, if that's kind of what those companies are. Why would they buy a, a company that's all about personal websites, for example? Like they're going to have no need for that. And so we said, look, if we're ever going to get value for this thing, we need to be a company that is valuable for these types of people. And so in that meeting, we decided to actually reposition and pivot the entire company to be focused on the small business customer and solutions for them. And so that not only just changed kind of our messaging and stuff like that, but it also changed our product roadmap. So for example, when Facebook came out with Facebook pages for business, we built a product that was for that, that we wouldn't have done at all if we were just like a personal website builder, right? And so those are the types of changes that we made so that when Vistaprint then knocked on our door in 2011 and said, who are you? We said, we are like a pre preeminent um, tool set resource for small and micro businesses to grow their business. And that was music to their ears because that's exactly what they were doing. Vistaprint had a lot of physical products for businesses to grow, but they're looking for a digital, uh, a team and a digital product solution as well. And we basically slotted directly into that. Um, and that made a big difference, I think, in terms of the synergies and everything else. Amazing. It's, uh, you know, we talk about uh, a process uh, that basically has, you know, that takes business owners through the same process of identifying like, who would be the likely candidate to buy this business and then starting to think about strategic decisions through this lens. So this is, this is, uh, this is super helpful. So one and, and actually we did, we, we worked with, um, we never hired a banker, but we did work with one who also helped in that process and just helped us at least validate, like, are these the names? Who are we missing? How can we think about the pricing of this thing? What are the comps? Um, they were good enough to, can, to kind of help out, um, as well. That's great. Yeah. yeah. So one of the things that you did materially to change the way you ran the company after you focused on small micro businesses was, for example, you built out the, the, the application for Facebook business pages. Yeah. What else did you do to focus on this SMB market? Like what decisions did you make that were different because you identified this market? So we had built out kind of like a social networking capability so that people could kind of create social stuff happening on their sites. We basically deprioritized that whole roadmap um, and got rid of a lot of the social features. Um, we uh, started changing our premium packages to be more focused. So we added another premium layer that was like a business package um, that had more stuff that we thought businesses would want. Um, we built another product that was a CRM product called contactme.com, which was like a widget that lets you ingest contact information and have like a little CRM to manage those contacts. So, uh, yeah, I mean, basically everything, all of our, and, and then we shut down the ad business. So we had a, we had an ad business where we were selling direct ads on all these personal websites, but no business wanted ads on their sites. Um, and the personal website thing didn't matter. So we actually shut down the ad business completely 
close down our ad sales team and all of that because it was no longer germane to that vision. What did you do? You mentioned 60% of your users were personal or, you know, for personal reasons. What did you do with that group? We just left them. We left them continue to run, but we just didn't do anything particularly for them, right? Like if they report a bug, we'd fix that bug because it would impact everybody else. But like we just stopped building features that would have been only relevant to them. That's helpful. You mentioned Vistaprint came knocking. Is that literally what happened? They reached out to you unannounced and and sort of were interested in having a conversation? Yeah, they had relationship with some folks on our board. And so they reached out to us and that sparked a board conversation that said, hey, we got someone reached out and we're interested in maybe pursuing this. We think it's a good fit. And then they said, okay, then go have other conversations too. And so then we started reaching out to other people. But if you're getting inbound interest um, that's a good signal that like that might be the time to start thinking about something. Um, and and then, but they kind of reached out and then we talked a bit and then they're like, okay, we're not interested, but we continued down with the process. And then late in the process, they came back and said, actually, we're very interested now. We've changed our mind. We're, we're you know, um, we had an offsite and, and we've decided that digital is very important to us and this is now a top priority. And so they came back in very late in the game and uh, and and um, ended up being the the winner of the deal. Interesting. So you have these original conversations with Mr. Print initiated by someone on the board, one of the investors, or or sparked as, as it were. Yeah. They get cool to the idea or cool, but you yeah. like the kind of ball. You know, the the toast is out of the toaster, so to speak. It's it's hard to put it back in. So you're you're starting and you're having conversations. You're leading those with other people on the list, people like Intuit and Causing Contact and the other yep. folks on the list. Yep. Yep. And what's yep. the reaction yep. like? Um, well, generally what happens is then you can go and instead of saying we're trying to sell our company, which is usually a terrible sign. It's like, if you're doing so well, why are you trying to sell it? What you can then say is we got inbound interest and the board has requested us to do a market check and see kind of if there's other interest around the table as well. Are you guys interested? And so then it doesn't look like you're the one who's wanting to sell the company. It looks like you know, that that you have to have these conversations. Um, and then there was interest, right? Because you're also saying like, we have someone who's really interested. It's like, well, if our competitor's interested, maybe we should be interested too. We need to look at this thing. Um, and so we had those really good conversations and then they slowly mature. And some drop off and some get deeper and deeper. You're meeting more parts of the team, et cetera, culminating in term sheets. And the, the main thing that you want to do is have more than one. I mean, the most important part of M&A, any M&A process is your first term sheet because then it gets real and then you have a forcing function for everyone else. Up until that point, the M&A teams, everyone's like, yeah, 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 we're looking into you, blah, 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 blah. But that kind of puts a, it makes it real and it puts a time um, limit and you can call everyone back and be like, we got our first term sheet. We're expecting to make a decision in the next couple of weeks. Like you're going to have to put a deal on the table if you want. And so then the very, it kind of, it's a, it forces other people to get serious, put something on the table. And then, you know, then you have real negotiating power. What was the sign that Vistaprint had lost interest? Like, how did you know that? Oh, I mean, they just said like something like, thanks. It was great talking to you. We'll let you know, uh, you know, if we're interested. And then they just didn't like, there was no follow-up after that. And so it's like, if someone wants to buy you, they're not just like going quiet <laughs> for months. And they might've said something like, thanks, you know, we'd love to keep in touch. We're not interested at, at this time or something like that. Also something like, something in there, one of those two. Interesting. But at that point, you're already sort of 
started conversations with other folks. And so, yeah, yeah, exactly. So we'd already started. Yeah. And so we just continued those. Yeah. And we're like, okay, Vista prints out. That's okay. There's other people. Who provided the first term sheet? Um, uh, the first term sheet was actually a company called Vocus. Okay. I'm not familiar. Yeah. Yeah. They were a local uh, company here with, um, uh, you know, they did small business marketing, similar, similar thing. Yeah. And had, at this point, did you have a sense of what you thought it was worth? Uh, clearly, the um, investors did. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the investors were definitely looking for um, 100 plus. I was thinking that it would be, we would have considered, at least considered a deal, anything over like 60 or 70. That doesn't mean we would have gotten the yes. And the investors definitely wouldn't have gotten the yes. We would consider a deal over sixty, something like that, which would have been like a six x on revenue. Got it. So sixty million, which would yeah equate to six times your ten million in recurring. Yeah, revenue. exactly. Uh, yeah. Again, for folks who run, uh, you know, a, a plumbing company or or a, a drywalling company, the idea of six times revenue is just astronomical because <laughs> yeah. right? it's usually a multiple of EBITDA. But well, remember, yeah, I mean, our gross margins were like ninety percent, right? Like as a digital subscription business. So it's it's like six times gross margins is another way to think about it because our, our revenue and gross margins were almost the same. We're almost identical. Got yeah. it. So you get this one term sheet and what else happens after? How many term sheets did you ultimately get? Um, so we didn't disclose that, um, but you know we had several people around the table and, uh, and so the term sheets were coming in. So they're either landing or they were about to land. And then the Vistaprint one came in as well. And... Um, it came in at a price that, you know, was definitely like in the range. Um, in fact, you know, our, our board member contacted someone there directly and said, look, this is the number. If you get to it, you pretty much will get the deal. And they came back in that range. Um, and I think they, we asked, we want, I think the, the, the board, they came in 115, the board wanted 120. And so we met in the middle. Um, so, uh, there was a small negotiation on the price, but not, Sorry, not material. You lost me there. Who wanted 120 Sorry. and who wanted 150? So, so our board, so, so the initial offer came by Vistaprint was 115. Our board said, no, we really want 120. Um, and went back to, so, and they, they sort of said, we want you to go back to them. And we, we, we landed in the middle, 117 and a half. Okay. Um, and, and. You know, at that point, I was like, guys, this is good enough. Like, let's move forward. We like the partner. I mean, we didn't talk about that part. This assumes you like the company and the people and all of that stuff because you're going to be working for them. Um, and uh, and so we decided to say yes. And we signed that term sheet. Then there's a bunch of diligence where, I mean, you better have your papers in order. I mean, they're going to look at everything. Um, they're going to look at everything. And you're not going to really, you know, be able to fool them. You don't fool your way into a deal. Like, they're going to find it if, if you're if you're hiding something probably going to find it. And so you shouldn't have any of those things when you're ready to sell the company. You should have resolved them ahead of time. What was the most difficult part of diligence? Like what was the data point that was toughest to furnish the data request that was most? There were a couple. um, It's not tough to furnish. You just don't know if it's going to be a deal breaker or not. Right. So they're going to look at like your churn rates, for example. And it's like, is this good enough for them or not? Um, There was another thing we, there was some BS patent suit. It was like a patent troll was suing all of the website builders and claiming that they patented website building. Um, and, you know, uh, 
no one like they would never win that lawsuit because there were people before them like GeoCities and stuff that had already done it. Um, but we don't have time to go and spend millions of dollars invalidating that patent, right? And this deal was coming up too. And so we just went and like paid a couple hundred thousand dollars to to settle that suit. Um, we just settled it because you, you this we're not going to close the deal with a patent like litigation on our, you know, uh, like hanging over us. And so this is why these suits work is people settle. And if the people who settle earlier, they pay less, but then that pays the lawyers to keep going. So I feel bad about it, but we just gave like 200 grand that now pays the lawyers six more months to go and sue a bunch of more people. And every at every stage, the, the price goes up and up until it gets to court and litigation. Um, so that was like another example of like, we just had the things you wouldn't normally do. You just do to get it out of the way to not create barriers to an exit. Yeah. Churn is really a problem when selling to the SMB market, not because the, the product is bad or yeah. fault, faulty, but just because yeah. small businesses go in and out of business. Right. Totally. Did you distinguish between, uh, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, uh, can't think of the word right now, but basically churn that you could control, control uh, versus uncontrolled. Yeah. Um, addressable versus un unaddressable. So sure, that's not the way, the way we think about it. Um, yeah, I mean, what we started doing is we started offering like annual and even two-year packages actually to just like give people discounts but lock them in for longer. Um, the, the most important thing, and I didn't learn this actually until later, the, when you think about churn and people ask a churn rate, that, that came from like the SaaS world where you've got an enterprise 500 company and they're not dropping off and whatever, right? And so your churn rate's like 1%. It's very stable whether someone just signed up a month ago or they've been with you for three years. Uh, with consumer, which is small business acts more like consumer, there's no, th there's no churn rate. It's a churn curve, okay? So like you're like in the first month, you're losing a bunch of people and next month, it's a little less. It's the next month, it's a little less. And what you want to show is that it flattens at something. So let's say um, you lose 70% of your users in the first two years or something, but then that 30%, like is, it's very flat. It's like 1% churn, you know, after like monthly churn or something very low after that, then that's still okay actually, because you can build a business. Those, will, those cohorts will stack on top of each other. And the other thing you do is you start saying, okay, who the hell are those people? Right. What dis differentiates those people from the, the other folks? And you might find they're slightly larger or they're higher revenue businesses or they're ones that create a store instead of uh, have like just like a service company or whatever it is. And then you can start focusing your marketing towards that. You can start focusing your product towards that and whatever is to find those more sticky customers. But that's so, the game in, in, in it. Yeah. Yeah. It's such, a, it's such an important point. I'm so glad you raised it, the distinction between churn curve versus churn rate. And you can think of almost people in that churn curve as, you know, you could think of them as cost of marketing. You could think of them cost of marketing yeah. research. Like there's a lot of ways you could attribute that lost customer that kind of comes yeah. in for a few weeks and then leaves at the back door. Yeah, absolutely. But it's the folks who stay for long term that, that you want to really focus in on. Makes you want to optimize on. Yeah. Yeah. So to be clear, Webs sells for $117.5 million, which equates to roughly 12 times, let me get that right? Yep. 12, 12 times back. revenue. Yep. Amazing. Usually we end there, but 
with you, you're such a problem child. You have to go on and go start another business. Yeah. <laughs> and this one is even bigger and more spectacular. Uh, give us the, the, the short version of Truebill and, and what yeah. it is that you built and, and how you exited this. Short, short story is um, I stayed at Vistaprint actually for four years, um, but sort of went to part-time in the last couple. But I really believe if, you know, if someone's buying you for the talent and, and your brain and all that stuff, you should stick around and provide the value. And because Vistaprint did not cheap, you know, go short on us, I think in multiples and stuff like that, I felt a responsibility to give, you know, to provide as much value as possible. Was there an earn out piece of that? We didn't have an earnout, no. Okay, so just- we did have a two-year. We had a two-year lock, like required kind of lockup. Okay, um, where they said we want you to stay for two years, but then after that, there was nothing. But there was no earnout or anything. Um, so I, we literally got back in the basement, me and my brothers. <laughs> um, we got back in in my brother's basement, and we we're like, "What do we want to do next?" They had already left Vistaprint, um, and we we created something called the Floundry, and the idea was we would flounder on ideas until we found something that was would really stick. So we, we came up with a couple different ideas, didn't really launch anything, but um, came up with a few concepts. And then this idea of like subscriptions management had been bothering me because I like couldn't keep track of my own subscriptions. And um, I went to like other sites like Mint and whatever to see if I could just find my subscriptions and I couldn't. And I was like, guys, this is like a problem. Um, it seems really annoying. And what happened was, I always thought the linking to banks would have been so hard to build that like what I wanted was, hey, I should just be able to like link all my banks together and something just tells me what I've got. And it turned out that my brother, he said, oh, that's funny. I was working on this new, there's this new company called Plaid that makes it really easy to link with banks. And I'm like, you gotta be shitting me. And he's like, yeah, like in fact, I've got it working on my laptop right now. I'm like, that's crazy. So we basically said like, let's try this. What happened? So we we linked our bank accounts and then we looked through our stuff and we built like a little algorithm that would find subscriptions and we all found stuff that we were paying for that we shouldn't have. So in my example, I was paying for a security system on a house I'd moved out of 40 bucks a month. <laughs> and like, I was just paying every month for it and just had like, it was just, you know, like I have paperless statements. I don't look at them and it's just every month. So 500 bucks a year, just that. My brother was paying for GoGo Wireless. Like we all had stuff and we're like, huh, this might actually be a bigger problem than we thought. Then we we gave it, you know, we 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 stood up a site. Um, it was originally called Bill Ninja, actually, because <laughs> um, we liked the idea of having like a like a character, and so it was a duck bill platypus ninja um, that would like slice, you know, your bills. Um, and we showed it to our friends, and they kind of liked it too. And then we were like, okay, we need a better name for this, and uh, we came up with True Bill, got the domain name and stuff like that. And then it was like a similar thing to this Harvard Law School thing. So we applied to Y Combinator and we said, if we get into Y Combinator, it's probably worth creating this company. And if not, maybe we won't launch it. Maybe we'll do something else. Like we don't know. Um, but when Y Combinator accepted us, and that's kind of the top incubator and uh, program in the company, then we decided to make it a real company. And um, two of my brothers moved to San Francisco because you had to do that to, to be in Y Combinator. And, you know, the, the company was born. Um, it, but, yeah, it grew so, like a wheat. Well, for the first two years, it didn't. So, oh, you know, we got users, but we couldn't figure out how to make any money off of them. We thought that we could add like credit karma. We could put little ads in and recommendations for other products and we could make money that way, but just wasn't enough money. And so by 2018, we were basically almost out, we were out of money. 
We didn't have enough revenue to kind of support a business. And so in desperation, we did the only thing we knew what to do, which is what if we make this a subscription business? Because that's the only thing we know. And I, <laughs> the irony I was, of that is uh, gobsmacking. <laughs> exactly. So I had resisted this for so long because I'm like, guys, this is this cannot work. It cannot like not only will people not subscribe, but they will cancel very often. <laughs> um, but we did it. And actually, a lot of users subscribed to it. And we we're just like really surprised by that. Um, and it culminated in us actually adding a screen that just said, hey, we're in this for you. If, if we provide value, we just ask that you pay also. And we let people choose. And we said, choose how much you think is fair. And we let them choose how much per month they wanted to pay. And a lot of people said, okay, that's fair. And they paid. Um, and suddenly the like the LTV of the customer just trained, changed dramatically. And we saw that the churn curve really did start flattening after a few months. Um, and what that unlocked, which look at the end of the day, any scalable business should just focus on one main metric, which is your LTV to CAC ratio. And so, you know, how much does it cost? How much do you make on a customer in some period of time? That's your LTV. And then how much does it cost? And if that's more than one, if you make more than a dollar for every dollar you spend, then it's a cash machine at the end of the day. And so um, we, we, we sort of got, we stumbled into this out of desperation subscription model. It worked, people started paying for it. We started adding premium features. And then we went to the market and we raised a very small round, $5 million. You would think that after my first exit, uh, everyone would be banging on my door saying, please, can I invest? We got about 50 rejections, um, 50 rejections. No one would do it. In fact, the only one that did it was the investor in my first company, a fund called Coda Capital. He had started a fund at that time, and so he did it. I literally had conversations where people said, look, Harun, we love you. Any other business we will fund, just not this one, <laughs> just anything else. They're like, but personal finance has been, people have tried this so many times that they've hit a brick wall and you, it's just too hard to do. It's too niche. No one, no one's going to use it. Uh, and just give me any other idea. Um, but so, so we raised the money and we started building a marketing team. And this choice to go premium subscription had a lot of benefits. The main one was rather than building a product that could sell people on other products, rather than having a teams thinking about how many more ads can I jam into this app, right? Which is what you end up with. We said, all we care about now is making the best product possible that will keep people around for the longest amount of time, right? So we focused on like our NPS score, we focused on retention. Um, and so we cleaned the app up and just made it really, really good place for you to see all of your finances in one place. And we expanded from just subscription management to just a full-blown financial management platform. You see all of your spending, everything's categorized properly. It's really easy to fix numbers if they're wrong. Um, it, you know, your credit score, you can see your full credit report, like this all-in-one platform that reduced all of the noise and, and gives you like pure visibility over everything going on with your money. And there was, um, yeah. when you look at it, and, and folks may not have had a chance to take a look, I know you, you, you hundred, hundreds of, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of users are true, Bill. Uh, it's it's yeah it's 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 getting close to ten million of, of yeah. like, like so a lot of people listening will have checked it out but for those yeah. who haven't uh, as Harun says it, it it's a it's a, an app where you can look at all your your spending identify when you have a subscription uh, that you may not have known about one of the things it also does Harun and I was curious to know 
how much how sticky this was yeah is two things one it has for the premium offer it has an offer to help you cancel a subscription that's an right unwanted subscription and the second one was helping you negotiate lower rates for the subscriptions that you have yeah and i'd just be curious to know were those marketing spin or were those real do you, do you know what i'm getting at yeah yeah no it's it's actually um they're they're very much used features especially the subscription cancellation one which comes with the premium package you know it's one thing to go and get visibility and say, okay, this is what I have. But then it's like, there's a lot of mental work involved in going and canceling a subscription. You're like, oh, so it's this thing you signed up for nine months ago, it's some vitamin package, it's like who knows what it is. That's that security system. How do I go and cancel that thing? Like, I don't know. Now I got to go figure out that. I don't know my password. There's so many problems with that, right? And so, and then there's also a lot of places require you to call in or something like that. There's people with like high anxiety that they, they don't want to make that phone call sure. because there's going to be a high pressure situation where the person tries to give them other offers and deals says, please don't cancel. So making a button that someone can just hit to cancel it and having our team go to work on their behalf engendered, it's not something you need to come back and do every day, obviously. So it doesn't create retention from an engagement perspective, but it engendered a loyalty that's like, wait a minute, this app just saved me, let's say it's 10 bucks a month or 20 bucks a month. This app just saved me $240 this year. That's like years of having this app. So why am I going to cancel it? Like if this happens even every six months, this app is paying for itself and then some. Um, so we've saved over $100 million for our customers. There's more, we've saved more for our customers than the revenue we've earned as a company um, between that and the bill negotiations. Take me back behind the curtain of what happens when someone hits that button. Are there yeah. people scurrying around calling Cox Cable and saying, cancel this guy's cable? Or is it all just um, automated? Yeah. No, it's it's a combination actually. So the bill negotiations are people calling. We have They're people call on your calling. behalf. Okay. Um, because that's negotiation. So they call like AT&T and say, hey, is there a better rate? And they say, yeah, you're on a grandfathered plan. Here's a better rate. Um, or, or something to that extent. It, the cancellations, we've researched over a thousand different subscriptions, how, how do you cancel them? And some are an online chat, some are an email you have to send, some are you go online and do it online, some are a phone call. And so we've sort of optimized processes for each one and some are automated uh, and some actually we have a person going and doing it for you. It's so cool. It's such yeah. an, it's one of those things. I live in Canada and we don't have Truebill here. And mm. I went to download the app as soon as I did the research on uh. the interview. I'm like, this is going to be great. And then I'm like, of course, it's <laughs> locked. Can't download yeah, it. Yeah, sorry. But about it's that. one of those things when you read about it, you're like, this is intoxicating. Like the idea that this could all be automated is just, I can yeah. see why it got traction. And it did get enormous traction. I mean, just it, it, um, Take us through the actual revenue. It got to yeah. almost a hundred million in in, in, yeah. in in recurring revenue. Yeah, so we got to we went from when I mentioned that that Series A round that we did that was 2018, right? We had we were at a million dollars AR. By the end of 2021, when we were selling the company, we were at a hundred million AR. So super fast. We were number 19 in the Deloitte and Touche Fast 500. Um, just like super fast growth. And the way we did it is, is this. it's pretty simple, but uh, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't intuitive for me. Here's the thing. People often say the goal is to spend as little on marketing as possible while you grow. Well, when we met, we, we, we met with advisors who told us basically the opposite. And they said, look, like, this isn't a viral app or something like that. No one's like tells all their friends you need to join this thing. So your growth is going to be a function of your marketing. 
And so what we ended up doing is saying, okay, here's the LTV CAC equation we want. Let's say it's like three or something. And we would tell the marketing team, you have an unlimited budget. Basically, we want you to market as much as you can, spend as much as you can within these parameters, and that's your job. And so the game was to ratchet up how much we could spend on marketing. And so they would saturate one channel and then find another channel and then saturate that and find another channel and saturate that. And then we would make an improvement to the product that increased the conversion rate. So now suddenly they can spend a little more. And so like we can rent, you can rent market even more. And so we, we went from spending, you know, a, you know, like hundred K a month in marketing to several million dollars a month in marketing and just we're like, but it was efficient because the money was coming back within a year. And so we, we grew all that way. We raised 85 million. We only spent 45-ish of it. Um, we raised 85 over that period through four rounds, but we only spent like 45 of it by the time we were getting acquired. So it ended up being the, super efficient. And the bogey that the marketing team had to overcome was a three to one LTV to CAC ratio? Yeah, and it changed over time. As we as we got bigger, uh, we, we sort of reduced it, or as, as ads got harder, we sort of reduced the bogey. But we started at three and, and then uh, maybe reduced it a bit. Um, and the way they would do it is, because you don't know the LTV of a customer on day one, is we, had a, we actually built a model where based on actions in the app within the first kind of 24 hours, it would send back a prediction to, to, the, to the ad platforms, to the marketing team. That's like, this is what the LTV of these customers was. And so they could tune things very rapidly, wow. um, you know, and, and, and so like on a daily basis, they were tuning up, okay, that ad's working, jack it up. This ad's not working, turn it down. And so just like a constant tune, tuning of the machine um, through this like model that we built. What were the actions that someone would take in the first 24 hours that would indicate long lifetime value? Well, I mean, look, the main one was, did they upgrade to premium or not, right? So a lot of people upgraded on day one. And then it was like, how many bank accounts did they connect um, it was like, you know, did they activate some other features or not? Um, you know, things like that, that they could, that, that are like good signal for this is someone, how many times did they open the app, right? Like just things like that. And we built actually a machine learning model where it would look at, re, you know, we back tested against here's reality of these customers and here's how much we made off them. And these are the actions they did. And then, so we'd have a model that then would forward predict that. Got it. And that would, that would obviously indicate in the first 24 hours if this, this customer is likely to stay long-term. Because yeah, they're likely, likely to upgrade it. Yeah, are they likely to upgrade and pay us? Are they likely to stick around? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I have to ask, the, the Web3, uh, the Web steal with the 3X yeah. liquidity preference uh, or participating preference yeah. in hindsight, now yeah. we all talk in hindsight all day long, but in hindsight, you probably wouldn't have done that deal if you could do it over again. Yeah. Tell me about what you structured in the four rounds of financing that yeah. really changed or improved from the yeah. first Yeah. So it was, it was the cleanest you could get a deal. Um, so it was just a very simple, like, here's the price, here's the terms. And every single round was on exactly the same terms uh, as were the voting rights. So there was no, like, there's these things called class votes where, like, Okay, to make any major decision, the Series D has to agree, the Series C has to agree, B and the A. We said, no, everything's basically going to be like a single just preferred vote. So we're going to need the majority of the common, the majority of the preferred, but like you don't get a veto power, at, you know, each one. And that took some fighting, actually. People wanted to do it. And every time we said no. And same thing, the preferences were, 
it wasn't like the D stacked on top of the C stacked on top of the B and the A. It was just one preferred pool and it was a 1x preference non-participating. Non and that was just so nice because when it came time to do the deal, you didn't have every investor thinking about their own lot and like, I'm going to, you know, what can I do or whatever. It was like they would just get outvoted if they were going to do something that was going to try to screw other people. So everyone was in it together and we got to, you know, agreements, you know, way faster that way, way easier. Um, the second you put in strange terms in any round, you set a precedent for every future round as well. And so... In the B round, we were going to put in some weird stuff they wanted to mitigate, uh, and and the, the A investors blocked it, actually, and they said, no, like, don't do this. This is going to mess you up later. And I really didn't like that because I just wanted to close the deal. We need the money. Um, but it ended up being the right thing because then at every single round, we said, guys, I'm sorry, but this is how we're doing it. We've done it every round. We're going to do it again this way um, and you know, made it super clean deal all the way through. Did you ever think about self-financing most of it? Um, well, I wouldn't have been able to self-finance the later deals. Um, I did. We did give the company a loan when it ran out of money um, before the A round. Um, and in retrospect, that would have, if I had done the A round myself with my brothers, for example, that would have been one of the best investments I ever made. Um, but it's funny at the time, I didn't believe in. I didn't think the company could get as big as it did <laughs> as fast. Like I thought we could make a good business out of it. But I didn't think, it wasn't so obvious to me that it was going to be huge that it's like, no way, I'm just going to put my own money in. Um, like, you know, last time it took 10 years and we got to a $10 million exit. I mean, we got to $10 million in revenue. I had no idea that this could get, you know, 10 times bigger than that in four years. Uh, it wasn't even like a possibility in my mind. Um, and so, so we didn't do it. I, I sort of kind of regret it. But again, it's a binary thing, right? The exit was $1.5 billion. There was plenty of money to go around. And so, sure, I could have had more of that plenty of money, but it's plenty of money either way. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So to be clear, you got to around a hundred million in, in annual recurring revenue, yeah. and Rocket Companies acquired the business for how much? Uh, One point two seven five, I think, is where it landed. Billion. Billion. Yep. <laughs> I have to almost laugh at that number. Like it's just so unbelievable. But do you ever just like pinch yourself and think, what on earth? Yeah, is no, going I mean, it was. I remember when I decided to go full time on Truebill because I had in that early time I was I took a chairman role because I was still at Vistaprint, um, and I said, well, what are the things that would make me want to do this? And I said, well, I want it to be something meaningful that's going to like help people, and it, it checked that box because it's a financial health app. And then I also said it needs to be an order of magnitude bigger opportunity than last time. And so that's 10x, right? And so 1.2, so, so 120 million, right? And then 10 times that's 1.2. So that was kind of the bogey in my mind of what we were shooting for was something in that range. Like I always wanted to do that. I always wanted to, I felt like I would always be chasing companies until I built a unicorn anyway. Um, and so, yeah, it was a surreal, surreal moment to hit that. I will say that um, entrepreneurs are builders and they're hill climbers. And a lot of them don't know what to do when they reach the top of a hill. Like, it's actually very disorienting. Many of them have gone on in depression. Mm -hmm. uh, like, it, it creates all kinds of problems, actually. Um, and it's certainly, you know, once you hit a certain money point, it has no impact on your happiness. Like, you know, you're not going to be able to buy. Other than donating money, there's one great line I like, which is whoever says, 
money can't buy happiness hasn't given enough of it away. Um, I do believe in that. But beyond that, you're not going to be able to do it. You know. So. You mentioned there was a key, uh, a TechCrunch article that you smiled yeah. at today. Can you describe it? Yeah, the TechCrunch article that announced our deal. So they announced every single round of ours. Um, and then when they announced the deal, it said something like, you know, Truebill, you know, to be acquired by rocket companies for 1.2, 1.3 billion or whatever. Um, only question is why so little? Now, this was written in December of last year, right? And, I, you know, I was annoyed by it. I'm like, it's a 12, 13x revenue multiple on run rate, not even on like our actual annual revenue, but on run rate revenue. So forward looking revenue. And, um, and, you know, that's pretty good. And then basically it was like, there's other companies that are getting 16 X revenue. And so why are they only getting 12 and why are they selling so cheap and stuff? If you look now, the, the multiples are at like three, if you're lucky. Um, I mean, this massive 70 to 80%, you know, dissolving of value in, in the shirt. So that, that article really did not age well. Um, and this is what I think entrepreneurs need to understand is like, what are you actually shooting for? What do you want? What are you trying to accomplish? And the other option to us for us was to uh, continue to build and go public. Um, I wasn't certain that I wanted to run a public company, number one. And number two, look, we had a 0% interest rate environment. So I just wasn't sure that eventually when interest rates go up, you're not going to have 20x multiples on revenue. It just like doesn't make financial sense. And so I didn't think they would drop this much, but I thought even if they come down some, and even if we're still growing, we're, our value will kind of asymptote in the one to three billion range, right? It's just going to kind of flatten off in there. I, you know, we didn't see some very clear visibility into we're going to be a $50 billion company. Now, maybe if we kept just going with it, we would be one day, we'd figure it out. But it wasn't like that was in my head of how we're going to do that. So we had a company come in Rocket, which is a massive company. It's got a massive mortgage business that wants to build a financial platform that we slide directly into that we think, actually, we think we can be a lot more valuable and the stuff we have can be more valuable in that universe as well. And, um, you know, really like the folks there and everything, really like the, the combined vision and, uh, you know, close the deal. Here we are. Are you up for a quick lightning round of uh, questions? Let's do it. That, uh, Let's do and we'll close that with. All right. What's the cli slimiest tactic an investor has tried to use with you? Mm. The slimiest tactic. <sighs> I don't work with a lot of slimy investors. Um, but I think it's if you I think any attempt at obfuscating the valuation that's being paid is slimy. So um if, if they say like, okay, do this, but then you got to give us warrants on top of it or something else, you know, like participating preferred or things like that. I think it's problematic, right? Because really like you're trying to get to a price. And so then they're like, well, we're going to get to that price, but it's actually not that price because of these other things we're putting in that you might not know about. Yeah. And you can use either uh, webs or Truebill on this question, but what's the biggest mistake that you made in selling a company? With webs, um, we people who were still vesting their shares, um, they just like those shares vanished. Their options vanished. They didn't continue to vest into anything, um, and that happens a lot. Now the problem is if you vest everybody, you just say, okay, we're going to accelerate everybody. Then they really don't have incentive to stay, and you want the team to stay. So we actually rectified that with Truebill, 
And part of what we negotiate in the deal is that everybody's options are going to convert to Rocket RSUs and they'll continue to vest over time. Um, and so we really took care of everybody and every single share still matters um, post-deal. So that's something you learned from the web deal that you brought into the Rocket. Yeah. The uh, triple deal. Got it. Yeah. What was the lowest point you reached emotionally in exiting mm -hmm. a company? Oh, in exiting a company. Um, well, I'll tell you the, the true bill one. Um, we are very close to the end of the, of the deal. And um, there was some last minute discussions on deal terms that came up. Um, and then I got COVID at the same time. And so we were trying to close the deal within a week. I had COVID and there were some serious things that we still needed to work through. And I just remember like being in bed, sleeping, and then had to get up for a meeting and like be on point and then just like collapse again um, <laughs> uh, through, you know, through closing basically. Um, and uh, I announced it to the company remotely, you know, while having COVID. Um, wow. So it was, it was a pretty hard, I, 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 I turned to my wife and I said, this is one of the hardest weeks of my life. Um, it's so stressful. There's so much at stake. Um, and then the market was starting to sort of like go down during that time as well. And so we're like, we really want to close the deal, you know, just to kind of bring certainty to ourselves. And uh, it was, yeah, it was a tough, tough week. What was the highest point emotionally you reached during an exit? Uh, you know, I really enjoyed the presentation that I gave um, to, to the company. And I, I'll tell you, the, the, the highest point was one by one, we called in our earliest employees. And um, we said, hey, wanted to, and they were freaked out. It's like, why are, why are the founders doing a one-on-one -on -one call? Am I getting fired? What's going on? I said, hey, we wanted to thank you for being early in this company. We've got an offer to buy the company for over a billion dollars. And um, they start immediately doing math in their heads and realize this is a life-changing amount of money for them, right? Like it, it, even if you had, uh, you know, 0.1% of the company, you're a millionaire. Um, and so there were many people whose lives were dramatically changed. And, and so have, being able to go and have that conversation with several people and telling someone, hey, you basically just won the lottery is a really freaking rewarding thing to do. I bet. I yeah. bet. I bet. Uh, what tools did you rely on to educate yourself about the process of selling your company? And I'm going to go back to the webs example where you were really sort of new to the process. Did, did, were there yeah. were there books? Were there podcasts? Like, what did you what did you consume? Um, you know, fortunately, I well, you know, I talked to some people, but I had a chief strategy officer. Um, like our head of business development, who also was like a chief strategy officer, his name was Turaj Parang, who had kind of been through some of this before. And so I basically handed the process to him and said like, hey, close this deal for me. And so he ran the whole thing. He actually just wrote a book called Exit Path, which is a pre-order on Amazon that tells our story and others. And so if people are interested, I'd recommend reading his book. Um, so that was in that case. Um, in the second one, I was really choosing this decision between, do I want to go public? Do I want to sell the company? So I called a lot of founders, 10, basically about 10 different founders, some of them that sold the company, some that went public. And I talked about, you know, you made that decision. How do you feel about now? How would you make this decision in the future, right? And talk to people on both sides of the aisle there. And that was also super helpful in me making the final decision. 
Great. And uh, the book sounds really interesting. We'll we'll link that up also in the show notes at builttocell.com if you want to uh, grab a pre-order copy of that. Tell me you bought yourself a trophy. Yeah. Um, it, it's funny. Um, people, people, a friend of mine asked, hey, you know, what did you, did you get yourself something? Like, what was the gift you got yourself? Um, and uh, he he pulled out of his bag a very rare baseball card that was worth like, you know, millions of dollars. And he's like, this is what I got. Um, and I, I did buy something, but it was nowhere near in that price tag. Um, I made this deal with a friend who had invested in the company that if we buy, that if the company sells, we're going to each buy um, an electronic um, e-foil surfboard. It's like a surfboard with a foil on the bottom that's got like a, a motor and then a, a trigger. And you kind of ride this thing and you stand up on it and you can kind of get above the water and stuff like that. So is it, an one of those, yeah. is it an Australian company? Uh, no, th- this one is made in, um, I believe, Puerto Rico. Okay. Okay. Um, we and, we had uh, a, um, an entrepreneur who sold his digital advertising agency, a guy named David Traverne, back in 2017 yeah. on the show. He then took the money and started one of these foil electric foil companies, which is why I asked him. <laughs> maybe, awesome. I wondered if it, maybe it was David. Uh, so you're still alive to tell the story. So you haven't killed yourself on the foil yet. I haven't killed myself on it. It's really fun. It's rewarding to kind of learn. It's fun. It's like new. Um, and I could have afforded it obviously before, but it just became like a fun thing to, you know, that me and my friend each got one and yeah. we can go together and, and like shred on the water. That's awesome. I'm a big believer in having a trophy, uh, to commemorate the success. I am so grateful for you to take the time to do this. Uh, we will uh, link up to the Exit Path book. Is there mm-hmm. anything else that uh, um, where where can people reach you on social? I know we're gonna have folks. Maybe your what's your Twitter? Yeah, my Twitter just yeah, my Twitter is just at Harun. Um, I was pretty early on Twitter, so at H A R O O N, like Nancy. Um, and I, I post some things there now and then. Um, that's probably the easiest place to find me. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, as well. And, um, you know, I do do like a lot of angel investing. So if there's folks that are, you know, that, that looking for support, um, I've done over 150 angel investments and, you know, still fairly active there. That's awesome. So uh, we'll link up to both your Twitter feed as well as your LinkedIn profile at builttocell.com. So if folks want to connect up with Haroon, that's where to go. Haroon, thanks for doing this. This is a great conversation, John. Thank you so much. My pleasure. It was awesome. And there you have it for today's conversation between John Warlow and Haroon Makhtarzada. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, along with definitions for some of the more technical terms referenced, then go ahead and visit the episode page, which can be found at builttosell.com. If you're a fan of the show and want to nominate a guest to be on Built to Sell Radio, then they can head over to builttosell.com slash nominate, where there you're going to have the chance to either nominate someone else or yourself to be a guest right here on Built to Sell Radio. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling the audio engineering, and thank you to the entire community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. I'm Colin Morgan. Talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.